Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I am Jason Kuznicki, the editor of Cato Books and Cato Unbound. And we are here today to discuss Jason Brennan's book, When All Else Fails, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. I am uh, not a philosopher. I'm an intellectual historian by training. And yes, there is a difference between them. Uh, we, in the history of ideas, tend to be struck by how long it takes for the full implications of a big idea to emerge and to be stated explicitly. One of the biggest ideas in liberalism is the idea that there is nothing morally special about government. Government is made up of people. It is made up of people who might have special uniforms or the most social esteem or respect. It may be made up of the people who are the most militarily powerful. It may have other attributes that we have chosen to give to it. However, the idea has been that these people are not morally special. They are humans like the rest of us, and they are subject to human failures, foibles, and even wickedness. And what, then, must we do when they are? This idea, though, has been very slow in development. It arguably started very early in the history of liberalism with ideas about the social contract and the right of revolution. That is to say, the idea uh, propounded by John Locke that when a government becomes hostile to those who are governed, when it, in fact, frustrates their rights rather than vindicating them, the people as a whole are empowered by right to alter or abolish the government. This is only one possible response, however, to the idea that the agents of government are not morally distinctive or special. Other possible responses include individual resistance. And uh, this is what we are here to talk about today. It is a controversial idea. And there are many aspects of this idea that will not be popular, will not be politically acceptable, will uh, invite, perhaps, hostility. And uh, this itself may explain why the full implications of large ideas are often not evident and not spelled out in so many words until many years after the ideas themselves have been thought. In any event, today we propose to do just that. And so I will now introduce our two speakers, and they will each talk in turn, and then we will have some time for questions. Also, uh, this is a somewhat unique uh, Cato event in that we have lunches behind you. And if you have not managed to get a lunch, now is your chance. So please do so if you are, if you are interested. All right, Jason Brennan is the Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He is also concurrently research professor in the Department of Political Economy and Moral Science and the Freedom Center at the University of Arizona. He specializes in politics, philosophy, and economics. He is the author of a, quite frankly, astonishing 10 books, 
His most recent book isn't even the one that we're talking about today. It is Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education, which he authored with Phil Magnus. He's the author of this book, of course, When All Else Fails, Resistance, Violence, and, uh, sorry, excuse me, The Ethics of Resistance to State Injustice. Your, your, your title is strange. Yeah, okay. I didn't notice that. Uh, in Defense of Openness, Global Justice as Global Freedom, with Bas van der Volsen. Against Democracy, we can tell we don't shy away from controversy here. Markets Without Limits with Peter Jaworski. Compulsory Voting for and Against with Lisa Hill. Why Not Capitalism. Libertarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know. The Ethics of Voting. And with David Schmitz, A Brief History of Liberty. Uh, he is also the co-editor with David Schmitz and Bas van der Velsen of the Rutledge Handbook of Libertarianism. He also currently has five book projects under contract. Uh, yeah, I complain about not being able to have the time to write one book. Uh, his books have been translated 19 times into Mandarin, Spanish, Chinese, Portuguese, Turkish, German, Italian, Greek, Polish, Mongolian, Georgian, and Swedish. Jeremy Rabkin is a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia School of Law. George Mason University. Before joining the faculty in June 2007, he was for over two decades a professor in the Department of Government at Cornell University. Professor Rabkin serves on the board of directors of the U.S. Institute of Peace. He also serves on the board of academic advisors to the American Enterprise Institute and on the board of directors of the Center for Individual Rights, a, a public interest law firm in Washington, D.C. His books include Law Without Nations. He authored If You Need a Friend, Don't Call a Cosmopolitan, a chapter in the varieties of sovereignty and citizenship. And his articles have appeared in major law reviews and political science journals. His, journal, uh, contra, his journalistic contributions in a range of magazines and newspapers, uh, including the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Please join me in welcoming both of our speakers. Uh, thanks for spending your lunchtime with me today. Thank you, Jason, for setting this up. And thanks, Professor Rabkin, for agreeing to take some time to remark upon the book and uh, possibly find some flaws in it and provoke some debate. Um, I want to let you know I'm purposefully dressed like the demon Crawley from uh, the current uh, Netflix show, or I guess actually Amazon show, uh, Good Omens, because I thought, given that the topic of my book, that might be a good sort of look for it. All right, so what inspired this book was the string of recent events that we've seen on television about the way that police are treating um, people in general, but black men in particular. And we don't have, by the way, really strong evidence that things are really worse. It might simply be that because now everyone carries with them this, which, you know, recording devices, when bad things happen, it's easier to get them, like, online and to see what's actually occurring. So we might simply be more aware of a prevalent problem rather than the problem actually being worse now than it was in the past. That's like, whether it's worse in the past is a good question. That's a separate book, though. So here's Richard Hubbard III. He's driving in Euclid, Ohio. If you've ever been to the area around, like, the eastern part of Ohio, you know that, like, cops there are constantly pulling people over because that's a good way to make money. They are kind of underfunded in those cities, and they're, they very rigorously enforce all traffic laws in order to get money for themselves. I'm not saying that out of bitterness, but it is true that I think both of the speeding tickets I've ever gotten came from Ohio for these purposes. So there you go. 
But I was treated pretty well by cops when that happened to me. Richard Hubbard wasn't. You can watch the police officer's dash cam video. You can Google it. It's on YouTube right now. And you'll see that he stops kind of like, you know, kind of meanders over line, but he stops at a, like, at a stop sign, puts on his blinker, and then takes a right. The cops pull him over. When the cop gets up to his car, he immediately opens the door and yanks him out and starts beating him. And Richard's putting his hands up. And of course, when the cop is beating him, he says things like stop resisting and so on. And then he gets him on the ground, prostrate on his stomach, and he continues to hit him and so on. And I wonder if you saw this happen, if you watched the entire thing go down, what would you be permitted to do? I think that you'd be permitted in this situation to use violence to stop the cop from hurting Richard Hubbard. Right? Now, I wouldn't recommend that you do that because if you do, you're probably going to get hurt. The police officer is better trained than you. There's a good chance they'll send a SWAT team to kill you. But the question here isn't whether this is strategic. My question is, would it be permissible to use violence to resist excessive police violence or other injustices committed by government agents, even when they're acting ex officio, in their capacity as democratic government agents? I think the answer is yes, it often is. So why? Uh, Albert Hirschman wrote a famous book called Exit, Voice, and Loyalty, and he said that when you are part of an organization, there's three basic ways you might respond to that organization and express your dissatisfaction with it. One is you might exit. You might try to leave because you think it's not a good organization, so perhaps you won't work for that company anymore. Perhaps you won't live in that country anymore. Perhaps you'll, like, won't... You know, you'll leave in some way. You might engage in voice. You might complain about the problem very publicly. You know, write letters to the editor, get on the streets and complain about it, get online and so on, and explain what you think is bad about what this organization is doing. Or you might simply remain loyalty, like have loyalty, remain loyal to that organization despite its flaws. And these are all good ways of responding, perhaps, to problems that organizations have. But I think there is a fourth option. And that fourth option is resistance. Sometimes you can take matters into your own hand and try to stop things. Now, the funny thing is, like, when you talk about this kind of stuff, violent resistance or other forms of resistance to government, most people accept this, just not when it comes to democratic overall liberal governments. So for example, Christopher Altman and uh, Andrew Altman and Christopher Heath Wellman in a paper say, surely it would have been permissible for somebody in the 1930s to assassinate Stalin, given how awful he was, given all the evil things he was doing, surely it would have been permissible for someone to assassinate him. And you ask most people, they think that that's true. Of course you could go back in time and assassinate Hitler. Of course you can assassinate Mao. Of course you can assassinate Pol Pot, these massive evildoers. But I wonder, if you're permitted to assassinate them, to stop them from unleashing the horrors that they were doing, what about, say, American examples? If we have an American president who's about to unleash the Trail of Tears and forcibly relocate five Indian nations at great personal expense, causing massive amounts of death, would you be allowed to assassinate that leader or the people underneath him in order to stop him from doing that? If we have uh, presidents who plan to put every, a bunch of Japanese people into an internment camp, would you be allowed to use violence to stop that from happening? If you have presidents who are about to start an unjust war, would you be permitted to use violence to stop them? Here, most people say no. They think that there's a difference here between one kind of government and the other, and they say rightfully so. Well, you know, overall, it's a liberal government. Overall, it's democratic. Overall, it's pretty just despite having some real flaws. So are they right? Is that enough to, make, to justify the difference? So what I'm trying to do in this book, a lot of what happens is I try to construct cases where there's a civilian who does something wrong, and you will probably have the intuition that you are permitted to intervene there. It might not be strategic to, but you're permitted to intervene. You're permitted to use some sort of defensive action to stop this from occurring. 
and then construct parallel cases where the only real difference seems to be that it's a government agent acting in his or her capacity as a government agent. Right? So imagine you know, you're sitting in a park and you see uh, a person show up, a gunman, and he starts firing at people. Right? You don't know why he's doing it, you don't know what's going on in his head, but you simply see that he's firing at people. And like many Americans, you happen to be armed. You probably have the intuition that it would be permissible for you to stop and shoot the gunman to stop him from shooting other people. Most people think that. What if, on the other hand, it's a different case? And this is, by the way, these are all real cases. I'm not making these up. So what if instead you see a police officer pull over a minivan full of children and a mom. The mom's hands are on the steering wheel. She's not armed. And when the police officer gets out, he immediately starts shooting at the van. Real case in America recently. Would you be permitted to take out your gun and shoot him to stop him from killing that woman and her kids? Right. I think you can. Do you? What's the difference? Does the fact that he's wearing a, a, a coat, he has a badge, he's working for the government, he receives a paycheck from the government, does that make, is enough to make the difference? I don't think the answer is yes. Imagine you're having a party on Memorial Day or the 4th of July, and one of the uh, party goers, let's call him Rodney, gets a little bit out of hand. He drinks too much, and he starts causing a ruckus. He knocks over the tiki torches and you know, causes a small fire. He's actually really putting people in danger, and rightfully so, a bunch of us intervened to stop Rodney from hurting other people. Like, But once we get him, once we stopped him, we put out the fire, and we've got him under control so he's no longer causing a ruckus, we're so mad at him that we continue to just beat him and beat him and beat him. He is on the ground, and we're pounding the back of his skull with sticks and rocks and kicking him in the chest because we're really angry. And you see this. Now, you see this and you go, you know, Rodney had, it, it made sense that we intervened to stop Rodney in the first place, but he's lying prostrate. He is no longer a threat. Are we, would you be willing to intervene to stop us from beating the hell out of him? Would you think it would be okay to do so? I suspect you think it is. Now, what if I have another case, but this time involving government agents? Let's say there's a person named Rodney, and he's driving a truck, and he's drunk driving. He's actually a genuine danger to other people. And the police intervene to stop him from doing that, as they should, because he shouldn't be drunk driving. But when they finally subdue him, they're so angry at him that they beat the hell out of him for many minutes. And it all goes on camera, and you can, of course, watch this. I'm talking about the Rodney King beatings here. Like, if you saw the police doing this, you see that this person's now been subdued, he's defenseless, he's no longer a threat to anyone, and the police, in their anger, are continuing to hurt him very badly. Perhaps, for all you know, they're about to kill him. You don't know what's going to happen. Is it permissible for you to intervene to stop them in the way that you would intervene, or think it permissible to intervene to stop me from doing the same thing? What if, imagine that uh, Jason is sort of a health nut, and he comes to believe that uh, drinking caffeine, as many of you are doing, is bad for you. Right? It's not good. It like, gets your heart going. It gets your sort of dependency. He thinks it's bad for you. And yeah, there's some scientific studies verifying that. There's also a bunch of scientific studies going the other way saying it's not that bad. But he just genuinely believes it's bad for you. So here's what he does. If he finds out in your town that you're drinking caffeine or you have any kind of caffeine products, he says, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to lock you in my basement for 30 days and take your caffeine away. And then one day you're having your morning coffee. Like For whatever reason, like the local police just go along with this. You just let him do it. One day, you're having your morning coffee in secret with your shades drawn because you know Jason might come in and break in. And he breaks into your house. And he's like, aha, I knew you were drinking coffee. Into my basement, you go. I think in that sort of situation, you would feel like, you know, Jason's a nice guy, but I'd be permitted to violently defend myself to stop him from putting me in his basement for 30 days on the basis of this. 
probably think that. If you agree with that, though, what about a similar kind of case? Imagine the American government has decided that marijuana is illegal. And if you look at the history of why they decided that, it was a lot of based on racism, because black people smoke pot and we can't have that. Um, jazz musicians, because of lobbying from cigarette groups and so on. But they decide to make marijuana illegal, despite overwhelming evidence that it's you know, not good for you, but it's not really that harmful and doesn't cause the problems that they say it does. Um, and now you're smoking pot in secret in your house, and they break into your house with a SWAT team, which is one of the most common ways for people to arrest. Like when SWAT teams are used in the US, they're overwhelmingly used to arrest people for drug possession, not for actual violent crime. They come into your house with a SWAT team, and you don't know what's happening. They break open the door, a bunch of armed men jump in with weapons, and you shoot back. Is that permissible? What's the difference? Imagine that uh, you happen to be stumbling upon, like you go in, you, you leave here and you walk into one of those other rooms. And when you come in, you realize Cato is actually a terrorist organization, right? There are people who think that anyway. So they're probably like, all right, Nancy McLean's like, I already think that. All right. Uh, you think that you realize Cato's actually a terrorist organization. And then over there in one of those rooms, they're about to launch like a biological weapon on a bunch of innocent people. And you see them about to press the button. And I can see many of you are packing heat. So you're armed and you pull out your pistol and you shoot some of the Cato staffers to stop them from unleashing this biological weapon. You'd probably think that that's permissible. Now imagine the same situation except you're a janitor and you happen to be in the situation room when the president is about to unleash weapons that will kill a bunch of innocent people in an unjust war or an unjust attack. And you have the position where you could actually attack the president to stop him. Would that be permissible? There's like dozens and dozens of cases like this. And we could talk about the fine details. But the basic thought is construct a case where civilians are doing something that you would think that is permissible to intervene to stop them, using violence, subterfuge, deception, and other means. And now construct a similar case with the government. The only difference is they didn't seem to be doing the same thing, but the only difference is that they are the government. Does that make a difference to the morality of the case? Most people say yes, which is kind of puzzling. I mean, it's very common for people to think that, so we're kind of used to it, but it's puzzling. Because what this means is that most people believe that your right to self-defense and your right to defend other people can be constrained by legislative fiat. It means that we can eliminate your right to self-defense or your right to defend others simply by passing a law or issuing an edict or you know, going through a really convoluted process and then saying this is what the rules are going to be, that when we put a badge on somebody and give them a uniform when they act badly that this somehow constrains your rights. So maybe that position is in fact justified, but it does have to be justified. And the question is why I believe it. So I think what most people believe in is what I will call the special immunity thesis. The special immunity thesis says this, the conditions under which you can use the exercise your right of self-defense or your right to defend others are much more tightly constrained when you're dealing with a government agent than when you're dealing with a civilian. You have a right of self-defense and a right to defend others against civilians acting wrongly, but the conditions in which you can exercise the same right against government officials are highly constrained. Right? They're shrunk. So maybe you still have some residual right, but they're shrunk down quite a bit. In contrast, what I want to defend in this book, When All Else Fails, is what I call the moral parity thesis. The moral parity thesis is really boring. It just says, the conditions under which you have the right to defend yourself or defend others from civilian wrongdoers are also identical to the conditions under which you can defend yourself from governmental wrongdoers, even if the governmental wrongdoers work for an overall pretty good government, and even if they were properly elected or properly appointed through some sort of democratic process, and even if they're acting ex officio in their capacity as government agents. So in other words, you're, you just have one theory of self-defense, and it applies to everybody regardless of who they are. 
Now, the moral parity thesis might seem kind of boring, but as Jason was pointing out, it has implications, or perhaps has implications that have not really been fully explored. If the moral parity thesis is true, it could lead to some radical things, depending on your, the circumstances you're in and your abilities. It could imply that it's permissible to kill people to stop an unjust war or to stop unjust laws from being passed. It might imply that you are permitted as a politician to lie to voters that you know are going to act badly in order to stop them from getting their way, or in order to win power in order to thwart their will. It might allow that you are able to lie about the content of the law if you are a Supreme Court justice or other justice in order to stop the law from being implemented or used. It might imply that you're allowed to go work for the government with the intention of sabotaging it from within. It might imply that you're able to lie about your legal compliance with certain kinds of regulations or tax codes if they're unjust. It could imply that if you are jailed for something which should not be a crime, or if you are jailed for something which should be a crime, but you were, they were mistaken, you aren't actually guilty, that you can use violence or other means to break free. You can resist any unjust or wrongful conviction. You can resist bad laws. You can whistleblow on state secrets and perhaps publicize those in order to stop the state from doing things. And then if you're working for the government, you can ignore or evade unjust orders. I think all of this would be an implication of the moral parity thesis if it turns out to be true. So the question is, is there any reason to believe the moral parity thesis? So my argument is not going to be this. It's not going to be some convoluted moral theory which you have no reason to believe in implies the moral parity thesis, therefore moral parity thesis. So if I was like, Kantianism implies the moral parity thesis, your reaction should be, who cares? Right? It's also not going to be, if libertarianism is true, moral parity thesis, libertarianism is true, therefore moral parity thesis, because you know, I, mean, I think some form of libertarianism is true, but I don't think that this is a particularly libertarian book, even though it's a book that libertarians might like the conclusions of. I'm not going to base this on any kind of libertarian premises. Instead, I'm going to try to defend it on the basis of common sense moral intuitions and judgments, the kinds of intuitions and judgments that most people have. In fact, I think in general, the reason people accept the special immunity thesis is because of moral confusion, not because of anything else. So my basic argument is going to be this. By default, we should assume that government agents and non-government <laughs> agents are morally equivalent, that we have the same rights against them as, we, as one against the other, unless we have good reason to think otherwise, unless someone can offer us a good reason to think otherwise. For what it's worth, philosophers have spent 2,500 years trying to show otherwise, and I don't think they've been successful. So I'm going to argue, well, the best arguments for special immunity fail, and when we see that they fail, it gets us back to our default condition, which is the assumption that they are morally on par. Okay, so let's get into the dirt, dirt here. Most people accept the same basic theory of self-defense and the right to defend others. This has been even, to some degree, codified. These intuitions have been codified into English common law and the rules of self-defense. The theory goes something like this. A defender may use defensive actions. Defensive actions include like subterfuge, deception, destruction of property, and even violence against a person. They use defensive actions against an aggressor if the defender reasonably believes that these defensive actions are necessary to stop the aggressor from committing an imminent severe harm or some sort of severe injustice. If Jason is attacking me and I reasonably believe that what it takes, he's the aggressor, I'm the defender, I reasonably believe that he is aggressing against me and that what it's going to take to stop him is punch him in the face, I'm permitted to do that. If I reasonably believe that he's going to cut off my arm and what it takes to, I reasonably believe to stop him, I'm going to have to shoot him, then I would be permitted to do that. Now, Everyone, I think, accepts this sort of general framework. What they dispute is the fine details. Exactly where do you draw the line, right? So we know there's a difference between having a full head of hair and being bald. We're not exactly sure where the cutoff is. It's like literally fuzzy, 
right? I think a lot of concepts are like that. And when you look at disputes about this philosophically, they're often focusing on exactly where we're going to draw the line. But even if you, we know, you might, I might disagree about that, there's still going to be some cases that are clear on either side. Now, when you look at case law and you look at the philosophy about what counts as a reasonable belief, it's not that you have to be 100% certain. It's not that you can't have any uncertainty. Right? So there are cases in like criminal law where there's one guy pushing around another guy and beating on him and so on. And this guy thinks, sorry to get really in your face, but I'm, I'm energetic. Like, you think, I, I reach into my pocket and you think reasonably, uh oh, he's going to kill me now. But it turns out you're armed and you pull out your gun and you shoot me at that point, And I die. And then later they find out, actually, I was just reaching for a pack of cigarettes. And this goes to court, and they go, you know what? It was reasonable for you to think he was going to get a weapon. And the threat, the danger of this uncertainty should fall upon the perpetrator, not upon the innocent. Right? So reasonableness does not require you be right. It doesn't require that you be certain. It just requires what reasonableness, whatever that is. The necessity proviso does not require strict logical necessity. So imagine something like, I have kidnapped you, I'm keeping you in my basement, and uh, you have two possible means of escape. One is you wait for me to come in and you like jump out and choke me and you run away, which has, let's say, a 95% chance of working. And the other is you try to dig a tunnel, which has like a 10% chance of working. Right? Necessity here doesn't mean like, well, because there's some possible way of escaping that doesn't involve hurting me, you have to do that. Rather, it's more like if you have two means of, es of escaping the harm, one of which is violent and hurts a person a lot, one of which doesn't, you should pick, and they're, but they're otherwise equally effective, you should pick the less dangerous, less harmful one. But you're not required to put yourself in harm's way in order to take a low chance thing that might work. As far as imminence here, it doesn't mean strict imminence. So if, you know, if I've kidnapped you again, and you know I'm probably going to kill you on the seventh day, you don't have to wait to day seven to kill me. You can kill me on the first day to get out. Right? There's some questions about how much violence you're allowed to use. Like, if I violate Jason's rights right now by plicking him on the ear, I won't. But if I plick him on the ear, presumably he can't cut off my hand to stop me. If I'm going to violate his rights by smacking him in the head with a baseball bat, well, maybe he can. There's a question of like how much violence you can use in response to how much violence from others. We can debate that, but you still probably accept the general framework. You also probably accept indirect versus direct threats. You know, like when people say it's okay to kill Hitler, well, as far as I know, Hitler never killed anybody. He just told other people to do it. But most people think it's permissible to kill the leader, even if he's only indirectly a threat to others. So people accept this general framework, but then when they apply it to government agents, they constrain it for some reason. They say, well, the conditions are much stronger for government agents than they are for like civilians. You know, we accept this general framework for civilians defending themselves against civilians or defending others against civilians. But in one way or another, we're going to make it stricter when it comes to government agents. So why? What would be their reasons? And that's what I'm going to end with, is by going through a number of their reasons and saying why I don't think they work. So one argument, the most obvious one to make, is that there, well, there is a major difference between government agents and civilians. Government agents and the government itself, at least some governments and some government agents, enjoy two special moral powers that ordinary civilians lack. And the name of these moral powers are legitimacy and authority. These words get used in slightly different ways in the literature and law and philosophy, but I'm going to kind of stipulate it. Everyone agrees that these are the two moral powers. They just use different labels. For legitimacy is the idea that government is permitted to create laws and rules and enforce them using threats of violence. I'm not able to do that, but government is. So to have legitimacy is to have permission to use violence to enforce a rule. To have authority is even more interesting. Authority is the idea that when government issues an edict or makes a command or creates a law, that at least in some cases, it imposes upon you an obligation to obey. So authority is the power to create in others an obligation to obey. 
Importantly, this has to be a new source of obligation. So if I get up here right now and say, I, Jason Brennan, the Flanagan professor at Georgetown, hereby command you not to murder anyone on the streets of DC, you would have an obligation to go along with what I said, but not because I said it. My commanding you has no additional moral force. It just turns out you have an independent moral obligation not to murder people. You don't have to listen to me per se. You just have to, I just happen to be commanding you to do something you already have an obligation to do. The idea of authority is that when government issues certain commands, you acquire a duty to do it because the government said so, or you acquire an additional ground of duty because the government said so. So if I say, give 20% of your income to help needy families, you're like, I don't care what you think. If the government says, we're gonna, we order you to give 20% of your income to, get, to help needy families, most people think, oh, well now I have an obligation to do so in virtue of government issuing that order. Now, the question is why think that government has this kind of authority? It turns out legitimacy is irrelevant to this debate, so I'm just gonna ignore it. Authority is a real issue. Government tells you to do something, you have an obligation to obey. Maybe that's why it's different. When the police officer decides to beat you up, well, he has authority. And if I decide to beat you up, I don't. So you have to let the police officer beat you up or beat up other people, and you don't have to let me beat up people because I lack authority and he has it. The problem, there's two problems with this. One is, if you know the history of philosophy, you realize that like, philosophers have spent 2,500 years, the smartest people in the world when it comes to this topic have spent 2,500 years trying to establish that there is a duty to obey the law, simpliciter. And it's largely acknowledged that they're a failure. Right? So I go in the book, I go through various kinds of theories of authority and explain what's wrong with them. But I'm just going to summarize by saying, like, we kind of know in philosophy, we haven't done a good job. Like, there are various arguments people give about consent and social contracts and about being a good Samaritan and about, you know, avoiding free riding don't really get you to a duty to obey the law per se. Right? So it looks like this whole argument has been a failure. In fact, for that reason, I think the most common position in philosophy now about people working on this topic is it's okay for governments to exist and enforce certain rules, but you don't really have a duty to obey the law. But let's say I'm wrong about that. Let's just say I'm wrong. It's one thing to argue that there's a general obligation to obey the law. Like you should pay reasonable taxes for the roads and for the military and so on. You should, you know, if you're called to serve on jury duty, you should serve on jury duty. If the government puts a law and says 45 miles per hour, then you should try to drive around 45 miles per hour. It's one thing to establish that you have an obligation to obey those kinds of reasonable laws which serve some sort of public purpose. But it's an additional burden to say that, actually not on top of that, you have an obligation to, like if you're living in the United States in the year 1850 and I'm a marshal, I'm like, I, you, know, you have an escaped slave in your house and I've come to take that slave and bring them back to the South so they can be re-enslaved, that you have an obligation to let me do that rather than resist. That if I'm your commanding officer and I command you to like, kill a bunch of, say, women and children in a village in Vietnam, that you have an obligation to obey my rule. That if I've decided to do something really awful, that you have an obligation to obey it. It's not clear that these theories of authority get you to general kinds of authority, but there's an additional burden to say, you have an obligation to do something deeply unjust or to stand by while other people do something deeply unjust. Right, so if you have here a theory of authority, and I haven't read it, I don't know what's in this, but I know it has a following implication. It says that if we all voted to nuke Tuvalu, that's a small island city, uh, nation state, if we all voted to vo vote nuke Tuvalu, that you have an obligation to go along and let people do that. I'd be like, having not read your theory, you know, maybe if I read your theory, I'll, I'll end up realizing the error of my ways, but having not yet read your theory, I'm gonna think that that's a counterexample. I'd be like, your theory implies it's permissible to nuke Tuvalu and I have to let people do it. That's obviously false, so this theory is wrong. So, I don't know. I'm not so convinced that these government authority arguments really are going to work because no one has shown us that government specifically has 
the moral authority to commit severe injustices, the very kinds of injustices that you would be permitted to defend yourself or others from if a civilian were doing it. So I think authority is kind of a dead end. But there's other kinds of arguments people make. One has to do with the idea that we should not be vigilantes. The idea is very familiar if you've read Locke or something. The thought is all sorts of bad things are happening, but what we need to do is establish a fair and reliable and you know, not sort of biased mechanism for sorting out violence and stopping crime from happening and so on. And so when this has been established, when there's kind of a credible, public, reliable system to stop crime, you should in general defer to it. And I think that that's in general right. If I'm crossing the street, like after I leave here, if I walk down the street and I see a person like shooting up a bank and the police arrive, I'm going to step out of the way and let the police do their thing. It seems reasonable to think they're better at dealing with this problem than I am and I should allow them to intervene and not intervene myself. I should step back. Right? Similarly, like when I see like many parts of the legal system, I'm not like, well, I think they get things wrong. I'm going to have my own parallel legal system. I'm like, overall, they might do a good job. I'm not going to have private criminal trials in my own home to punish people. I'm going to step back and let the state take care of that kind of stuff. Seems reasonable, but I don't think it gets you very far. The anti-vigilante principle says that when you have a reliable system that's being used to uh, there's Alex, how are you doing, Alex? Uh, then you have a reliable system that's being used to like, stop something bad from happening, then you should defer to it. It doesn't say when the cops are themselves the perpetrator of the injustice, you can't be a vigilante. It's not about that. It's about letting the cops stop injustice. It's not about letting them commit injustice. And further, so like, you know, take, there might be cases when actually as a private civilian, the cops should defer to you. Like just to take a cartoon case from the movies, if you've seen the movie The Dark Knight Rises, like the military, the US government, the government of Gotham City are utterly incompetent to stop Bane, but Batman is able to stop him. Now imagine the government said, Batman, like we know that you can stop Bane and we can't, but we insist that you let us take care of the problem, though we'll fail, rather than you doing it. Batman would be like, I'm not, I'm not sure my Batman was like, I guess you don't care about justice, do you? Just care about your own authority. And that seems like a pretty decisive objection, especially when you say it in that voice, right? <laughs> Like, it's like, well, we don't care about doing the right thing. We just care about being in charge. Oh, well, then you're jerks. You're horrible people, and you should feel really bad about yourselves. But it's more important that we do justice than we let you be in charge. And that's a case where I think the government should defer to him. So there might be special cases where, like, the government is simply not able to intervene. They're not there, and you are, and you can stop them. Now, what about other cases where the government simply chooses not to intervene? So suppose you witness a mugging, and there's a cop right there. It's reasonable for you to defer to the cop and go, hey, cop, you should stop the mugging, not me. I'm armed, but this is like kind of your business. Look, there's a mugging. Now, suppose the cop, here he is, is like, I'm sorry, I'm on break right now. Like, I'm not going to do anything, right? If you want, in 45 minutes, I'll be done and I'll stop the mugging. In that kind of case, you'd be permitted, it's permissible, I think, for you to stop the mugging yourself. Now, what if the cop is instead is the mugger? I don't see how anti-vigilanteism tells you not to intervene here. It's a very limited principle that's not about saying you must defer to government under all circumstances. It says you should defer to government when they are competent to intervene on behalf of justice. Now, another argument is that, well, you know, we should use peaceful alternatives. We shouldn't use violence when there are peaceful alternatives that are available to us. And that's right, but that's only simply really an elaboration of the necessity proviso. If Jason starts going crazy here and starts pulling out a weapon and starts shooting you, and I have two ways of stopping him. One is to take his head and smash it into the wall, and the other is to read my lecture notes from some talk I gave, which turned out to be really boring, and that will quickly lull him to sleep and be equally effective. Well, yeah, I should use the peaceful alternative over the violent alternative. 
If it turns out that like voting the bastards out is a way of stopping the problem, you should use that. But I'm not talking about these general kinds of cases of systematic problems where you're trying to stop the systematic problems from occurring. In fact, this is a point where it needs some elaboration or uh, distinction between two different kinds of intervention you might make. What we call civil disobedience and what's called violent, like resistance, like resistance or defensive action against the state. Civil disobedience is the idea that sometimes the state engages in systematic wrongdoing, and the best way to stop that is to take a public stance where you publicly violate some law with the intention of drawing, with the intention of drawing attention to your cause. You might even agree to accept punishment in order to show the purity of your mo like, uh, motives with the goal of kind of humiliating the government in order to induce do social change. There's a lot of evidence that this kind of civil disobedience can be effective in changing the law over time. For what it's worth, there's some really good books on this. Uh, one's called We Will Shoot Back, and the other's called This Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed. Both of them argue that the civil disobedience movement of the 60s, the civil rights movement that you're all familiar with, was effective as a peaceful movement only because earlier there had been violent resistance to cops. What happened was um, black civil rights leaders would protest, white cops would come and kill them. The black civil rights leaders responded by violently responding to the cops. If you try to kill our people, we will shoot you. The cops responded by becoming less violent and using other kinds of mechanisms to stop civil rights. They then switched to a new mechanism of peaceful, nonviolent resistance, and then you know the story from there. We were all taught it in sixth grade. All right, so even in the case of civil disobedience, violence might be a part of it that you're not really aware of. But civil disobedience is about trying to change the law. Right? If a cop tries to pull me over right now, I'm not, I, by the way, I'm not, I don't have any marijuana on me or something, but suppose I like leave DC and I get into Virginia and a cop tries to arrest me for possessing marijuana and I resist him. When I resist him, I'm not trying to change the law at that moment. I'm not trying to cause systematic social change. I'm trying to stop him from throwing me in jail. Right? If I see like a man about to rape a woman and I stop him from doing that, I'm not trying to end the patriarchy. I'm not trying to destroy rape culture. I'm simply trying to stop this particular bad thing from happening. Right? So it's true. We should defer to peaceful alternatives when they're available, but that's simply an elaboration of the necessity proviso. If it, if it turns out you're doing something wrong and I can stop you without hurting you, I should. I shouldn't use violence when deception would do, and I shouldn't use deception when some even less morally significant thing will do. But the kinds of cases I'm talking about in this book, the kinds of like real life cases I, br I bring out in the footnotes, are not cases where you could have stopped that injustice from occurring by voting or by protesting or by writing letters to the editor. That kind of action can stop future things from happening, and you should do that perhaps, but it can't stop that particular injustice. At that moment, it's either resist or do nothing, and the, and the injustice will happen. Now another argument about why it's different when government agents do it is that well, you know, they're not the same thing as like a criminal gang, right? If you see like a criminal gang beating somebody up, they're just in it for themselves. They're acting wrongly. They know they're doing something wrongly. Whereas government agents, they're acting out of good faith. They're trying to do the right thing. They're, they're trying to promote justice. They just might be doing a bad job of it. Now, that's not always true. There are plenty of cases where you can't really make the argument that they're reasonably trying to promote justice by what they're doing. There are lots of cases where it's like, Nope, that if you knew what's going on here, this is just simply not defensible. Like take like the My Lai massacre. It's not like, well, if you just, you know, they're trying to promote injustice by shooting these women and children, right? In fact, they're not supposed to do that even by uh, like the law of the military. But even if that were the case, I don't know if that works and really constructs a different 
uh, a difference between civilian and non-civilian cases. So there's this, in philosophy what we call the problem of innocent aggressors. Innocent aggressors are a case where a person, in virtue of having false beliefs, is doing something which seems like the right thing to them. They have the right kinds of motives, but they're just mistaken. So just to give you a cartoon example. Imagine, have you guys seen like the zombie movies that were popular like 10 years ago? You know, like the idea of these zombie movies is a new zombie apocalypse virus is out. And if it spreads, it's going to destroy the entire earth. So I want you to imagine the following has happened. Through a series of really weird, like just bizarre circumstances, Jason has come to believe that I am infected with the zombie apocalypse virus. Suppose for the sake of argument, he's justified in that belief, but he's simply mistaken. Right, we play this really elaborate prank on him where we've caused him to believe that they've actually developed a zombie apocalypse virus over in one of the government laboratories, and we pranked him into thinking that it's been released and I'm infected with it. Jason, out of the goodness of his heart, wants to save humanity and so tries to kill me. Now, in this kind of case, he has no wrong. He's, he's motivated by goodwill. If he were right, he'd be doing the right thing. He's just mistaken. Now, it would be permissible for me as a civilian to stop you from hurting me or killing me, even though you mean well. I think that applies to government agents as well. Like if they believe themselves to be doing the right thing, and even if they're reasonable about that, if they're mistaken, you can treat them as what are called innocent aggressors. Doesn't seem to make a difference between government agents and non-government agents. Maybe statistically speaking, it's more likely that government agents are likely to be innocent aggressors than civilians, but that's not an in-kind difference. It's just a difference of um, degree. Another argument is that, well, this whole thesis is incredibly dangerous. You can't say this stuff because the problem is if people believed in the moral parity thesis, there'd be this massive breakdown in society. We need people to believe in authority. We need people to believe that government agents are special and protected by special immunity. Belief otherwise is incredibly dangerous. There's a couple different variations of why this would be. One response is to say, I'm not so sure that's true. I think actually maybe the alternative point of view is really dangerous. Right? So one thing we know is like, here's how human beings act. If you get a bunch of Jews together and put them in a concentration camp and you get a random person and say, kill them, that random person goes, yes, I'll do it. And they sleep fine at night. If you get the average person in a laboratory, like a situation like this, and a person in a white lab coat says, I need you to electrocute that person. Oh, he appears to pass out. I need you to keep electrocuting him. See those warning lights? Just ignore them and keep electrocuting him. Almost everyone will respond by going, yes. We know that like, when governments do horrible things, the response for most people is to do nothing, to just let, sit by and let it happen, and they sleep like babies. Human beings, I mean, the research on this from psychology is pretty clear. Human beings are overly deferential to authority, even bogus authorities that they've just met five minutes ago. So if anything, I think the kind of objection here, which is this belief in this thesis is dangerous, is wrong. It goes the other way. In fact, I think belief in authority is dangerous. Like, there is a question of like, what's the optimal belief and authority people have to create social cohesion? I think we're probably too far in one direction and we just scale it back a bit. We're overly deferential to authority, not too little deferential to authority. But a slightly different variation of this says, no, 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 hold on, you're misunderstanding. What I'm saying is that you're giving people a theory of when it's permissible to use violence or subterfuge or destruction to stop government injustice. People are bad at figuring that out. They're bad at applying the rules. If they believe this, they would mess it up, right? And there's something that's true about that. It is true that like people are bad at applying moral theories. You know, so like, if you've ever heard of a moral theory called utilitarianism, one of the objections to it is, well, you can't actually teach utilitarianism to the average person because they can't handle it. They're not smart enough. But here's the point we have to say. There's a distinction between what we might call a criterion of right action, which is what a theory is trying to give us, and a decision procedure, which is the thing you use on the ground to make the right decision. So let me give you an analogy from, uh, say, baseball. 
right? If anyone here ever play baseball? Good, a bunch of people. So if you're in the outfield, right, a hitter bats a fly ball to the outfield. You're trying to catch it. What's the best theory about how to catch the ball? The best theory is there's a series of physics equations that provide a vector that explain where the ball is going to land, and you as an outfielder ought to behave as if you're tracking those physics equations to get to where the ball lands and you catch it. That's the correct theory of outfielding. Now, I don't know how good at math you are, or how good, I mean, but I, when I was in the outfield, I know I wasn't able to calculate those equations on the fly in order to catch the ball. So instead, the thing that I use is the thing that you use if you're a good outfielder, something called the gaze heuristic, which says, keep your head at a constant angle to the ball and move your body so that as you try to catch it, your head stays at a constant angle. If you do that, you end up catching the ball. So the decision procedure is the gaze heuristic. The truth is physics. All right, so similarly, for any given person, given your particular psychological biases, given your particular flaws, given the particular kinds of mistakes you're likely to have, the correct decision procedure for you might be very different from me. What it gets to, for you to do the right thing might be different from me. Maybe it turns out you're so weird that in order to get you to do the right thing, we have to convince you that Thor is real and have you read a lot of Norse mythology and believe that like, if you don't follow the following rules, Thor will smack you, in the head, smack you in the head with a hammer. Maybe for you, it turns out, to get you to do the right thing, we have to convince you that like Ayn Rand is right. And to get you to do the right thing, we have to just have you use your gut or something. The correct decision procedure for, it might vary from person to person, and it might very well be that people are bad at applying the theory. It doesn't make the theory wrong, it just means that there's a distinction between what you use on the ground to do the right thing and the theory which describes what the thing, right thing is. All right, another couple more objections and we'll be done. Another objection is that this is dangerous because the government might retaliate. I mean, I haven't said at the beginning, like I mentioned the Richard Hubbard case, and I said, if you were to intervene and kill the cops who are beating Richard Hubbard, they will probably send a SWAT team after you to kill you. And then the cops will probably act like jerks. In fact, the cops in the situation were jerks. Hubbard was removed from service because his cases were so egregious, and then the Euclid chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police caused a massive stink, and after a while, just acting like jerks, they finally got Richard, like the, uh, the cop who beat up Richard, reinstated and he has his job back and he's out there doing injustice again, right? So the police might react badly to your resisting. Government agents might react badly to your resisting. But the thing is, this kind of objection applies to lots of other cases. So imagine like I'm beating up Jason and you're like, Jay, the other Jason, you can't beat up this Jason. We're going to stop you. And I go, hold on, hold on. You in this audience, if you intervene and you don't let me beat him up, I promise you, this is a credible threat that I'll beat up five other people instead. I'm engaging in kind of moral blackmail. If you stop me from hurting him, I'm going to hurt even more people. Would you think, well, I guess I have to let him do his thing because he has a credible threat of causing additional harm. You probably wouldn't. You probably wouldn't think that, like, in virtue of being able to issue a credible threat of moral blackmail, that I somehow acquire permission to do that, or you lose your right to defend others, right? If I'm mugging you and I go, if you don't let me mug you, I'm going to mug six other people, you probably still think you're allowed to defend yourself. Further, most people tend to think that it's permissible to assassinate Stalin or Lenin or Mao, but there's actually empirical research on this about what happens when you assassinate evil dictators versus government, like democratic government agents. When Fanny Kaplan here tried to assassinate Lenin, unfortunately she failed, Lenin's response was to engage in the Red Terror and kill lots and lots of people. Um, on the other hand, when people have assassinated democratic presidents and prime ministers, the results are pretty mild. They don't engage in terror purges and so on. So if anything, this objection implies there's a stronger case for assassinating US presidents than there is for assassinating mafia leaders, because mafia leaders are much more likely to carry out a retaliatory threat than a US president. 
So this objection doesn't quite get you what you want. It doesn't make an in-kind objection. And at the same time, it also seems to just simply say, well, if you can gauge a moral blackmail, you lose your right of self-defense. Another objection says, well, you should defer to the cops because they might know better than you. And this is possibly right, but it's a clarification. If you're walking down the street today and you see two things happening, over here are people in gang colors beating up a person. And over here are police officers beating up a person. It would be reasonable for you to think, this is more likely to be okay than that. Given what you know, even here in like the US where we have relatively violent cops, given that you're like, well, it's more likely that these people, these police officers have a reason to attack this person that will turn out to be justified if I knew all the facts, then like, you know, these gang members doing this are justified. Now you don't know the facts going on, but it's more likely. So that's true, but that's again, not an in-kind distinction. It's just simply saying, Look, when you don't know all the facts, you should exercise some caution. You should be cautious before you use violence and other kinds of mechanisms. At the same time, though, it's part of the idea of self-defense and the right to defend others that the uncertainty falls upon the perpetrator, not upon the victim. When you're not sure if it's reasonable for you to think they're acting excessively or they're acting unjustly, but you're uncertainty, uncertain, the harm is supposed to fall upon the perpetrators of the, the aggressors, not upon the innocent. So I don't think this thing gets you what you want either. One final argument applies to government agents themselves. I spent actually really the second half of the book looking at if you work for the government as a justice, as a military officer, as a politician, do you maybe ha have weaker rights to defend the, against the government than civilians do? After all, you work for them and you make certain kinds of promises. So if I work for the, like when I worked for Georgetown, I had to sign a contract and I promised to do certain things. I promise, like so when my boss orders me to teach a class, it's like, I want you to teach the MBAs next semester. I might not want to do it, but I'm obligated to in virtue of having made a promise. He's acquired a kind of authority over me, right? And they make, give me a paycheck and so on. So I owe them something in return. That's true, but think about the limits of that kind of promise. So suppose Dean Almeida says, Jason, from now on, I want you to teach MBAs, not undergrads, even though I know you hate teaching, teaching MBAs. And I have to be like, all right, Paul, I've agreed to like follow your commands. And so long as I keep working here, I'll have to do that. On the other hand, if he says, I don't want you writing any more books like When All Else Fails, I'll be like, sorry, it's part of my contract that you don't have that kind of authority. He's like, all right, well, here's another thing that's not even just talked about in the contract. I want you to just go beat up Peter Jaworski. Right? I order you to do so. After all, we're paying you a whole bunch of money per year, and we're providing all these other services, and you made a promise to recognize me as your boss. I go, hold on. That's not how promises work. If I make a promise to do what you ask, say, like, like, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do over the next five minutes. And you're like, jump up and down. I'm like, I guess I have to jump up and down. You know, pat your nose. I have to touch my nose. Kill that guy. Hold on. That's not how it works. If I have pre-existing moral obligations not to hurt other people, not to violate their rights, not to commit severe harms, and those obligations don't go away simply because I made a promise to you and you gave me some money. Right? That's not how promises work. Right? So government agents don't acquire permission to hurt other people in exchange for a paycheck. Stated so clearly, it's kind of obvious, but somehow people think otherwise. So these are a few, not all, but a few of the major arguments people are, give for special immunity, and none of them seem to work. Right? And there's other arguments, I think they have the same kind of problem. What you get at the end is, well, we had a bunch of cases for special immunity, they don't seem to work, so probably we should just believe that government agents and civilians are on par. We have the same right to defend against them as we have to defend against civilians. You have the same right of self-defense against the president as you have against me. You can treat us one and the same. At most you might think, well, the president might know better than Jay Brennan, so if he says we should bomb somebody, he has more evidence than I do. But even that only goes so far. 
So I'm going to end by quoting the libertarian theorist Alfred J. Nock. He says, in order, this is written on the eve of World War II, he says, in order to keep down the American sin of self-righteousness, every public presentation ought to draw the deadly parallel with the record of the American state. The German state is persecuting a minority, just as the American state did after 1776. The Italian state breaks into Ethiopia, just as the American state broke into Mexico. The Japanese kills off the Manchurian tribes in wholesale lots, just as the American state did the Indian tribes. The imperialist French state massacres native civilians on, the own, on their own soil, as the American state did in pursuit of its imperialistic policies in the Pacific, and so on. So I say this not out of hatred for government agents, not because I'm a flame-throwing anarchist or anything like that. When police officers or government agents and others do things to protect our liberties and protect our rights and make our lives better, we should honor them for that. How dare we do any less? But when they violate their rights and violate the rights of others, when they exceed any of their kind of justified capacity, when they harm others, when they betray us by using their office or using the state to commit harm rather than to defend us, well, how dare they do that? And we should feel free to treat them the way we would treat any other wrongdoer. So thank you. I think that was a very um, honest and comprehensive account of what's in the book. I mean, you, you've, I mean, I, I, the book is interesting. It's entertaining. I mean, it's well written. It's fun. It moves along. If you like the talk, you will like the uh, book. Uh, about two thirds of the way along in the book, uh, there's this little dialogue that's reported. Uh, Jason discusses with a law professor, here are my views. And the law professor says, wait, you're an anarchist. And he says, no, 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 you didn't understand what I said. I didn't say that anyone can resist the government whenever they want to. That's what you're putting on me. But I said, when it is right. Is that a fair summary of that? Yeah. And this all turns, I think, on having high level of confidence that the ordinary person inclined to use violence will be perceptive enough, thoughtful enough, careful enough, responsible enough only to use violence when he should, appropriately, he or she should. Uh, and I just want to say, uh, no. Um, I think the uh, traditional American view, the classical liberal view, the correct view, you should be very, very wary of using force to resist the lawful established government, especially when it is a, uh, I'll use those words, legitimate uh, authority, because it's an elected government with, in general, respect for law. Yes, in the extreme, there is a right of revolution. Absolutely, there is. Interestingly, Jason in the book, it's one of the things he left out, has this little discussion about right of revolution, and he says, I'm not advocating that. that that's really impractical because you know a lot of people get killed, and in the end, things are likely to be worse because you just say, well, once you let the violence loose, it's really out of control. I'm not for revolution. I'm just for resistance. So I think this whole thing hangs on Okay, revolution, that's crazy. Maybe Thomas Jefferson believed in it, but <laughs> we're past that. The thing we now believe in is just individual acts of violent resistance. 
so I want to say first, I think that is wrong in theory. Um, second, I think um, as a practical matter, it really would be especially bad now. And finally, just even to, to promote this, I think is politically tone deaf. So I enjoyed the book, but I didn't, I didn't agree with it. Uh, let me say quickly about the theory. Um, this really seems to me to turn on the difference between resistance and revolution. So I went back and looked at what Locke says about this. Um, and he says, uh, he does speak about a right of resistance, and he uses that word. And he's very clear, yes, the individual has a right of resistance. And then he immediately moves on to say, but never mind, because they'll just be treated as hopeless cranks, and the government will crush them. It only matters, resistance, and the right of resistance when most people see the point and are prepared to join in. But he takes for granted that although in logic and theory you could distinguish the personal right of resistance with the, let's call it the social, the collective claim to change the government, in practice the first one doesn't mean anything unless you're in conditions where you could actually have a revolution. Um, he's very political about this. Um, Jason is very unpolitical about this. Which of them is wiser? I mean, I'll leave this to you, but I will just start by saying uh, he cites a whole lot of philosophers. Uh, I believe every one of them is alive, unless they were recently struck by a car or something. Uh, and my view, you can call me conservative if you like. You know, I don't believe enough in progress, but I think if you're setting out a basic fundamental moral doctrine that anyone could have thought of at any time in the last 2,500 years. Someone could have said, hey, Socrates, what do you think? I mean, we could have thought about this and have thought about this for a long time to take your bearings by people who are prattling at universities today and just ignore the whole history of political thought on this is a little suspect. I mean, there's just no reason to think you are right if you disagree with them, and there's no reason to think you are right if you don't even bother to tell us what they thought. So I'm kind of impressed that Locke was on the other side of this, but let me not just treat him as like, I don't know, he was English, he was like a little weird. Uh, Jason gives as if it is a knockout, which is like clearly irresistible, slavery. If you saw people who are enslaved, you'd be justified in using for, well, you know, this is not, it's hypothetical today, at one time it was not. This is discussed by Abraham Lincoln in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and he says over and over again, Douglas accuses Republicans of resisting the Dred Scott decision, and he says, he says, I, I want to be very clear about this. We accept the decision in that case, and we are not trying to interfere between Dred Scott and his current owner. We resist the political doctrine, and we mean to have it overturned. Lawfully, it will take time. He goes through a lot of trouble to say we're not arguing for force or violence. He uses the word peaceable means. At the very least, as a politician, he thought, you know, politically, it's just a non-starter to say, let's use violence to free the slaves. I mean, it sounds a little funny that it's uh, Lincoln, but in fact, 
he, he was able to do this in the midst of a civil war, because it was in the midst of a civil war, and he had mobilized vast force, and the country was behind him. But it's not a good thing, just starting from scratch, to say, let's uh, plunge the country into um, strife, into violence. Um, as Jason acknowledged, civil disobedience is different. When Thoreau, who was also motivated by opposition to slavery, said, I'm not paying my taxes, he did this very publicly, not to stop any particular thing in Concord, Massachusetts, but to get people to pay attention to him, to say, I want to elevate public concern about this by, by, by making a spectacle, but not by using force. Um, I think it's hard to find anyone, just speaking about the theory of this, any prominent figure who um, has taken uh, Jason's view, so that's telling and interesting. Let me speak briefly about the, why this seems to me not a, a politically wise thing in our time right now. Let me just speak quickly about some difficulties. Um, I think all the examples that Jason gives are ones that would appeal to professors and students at, sorry, Georgetown, not even at GMU, I think. Um, if you're a nice person, you know that it's wrong for the police to beat up people. You're like, okay, yes, yes. Um, if you say, I want to encourage people to go out and shoot the police, you're, you're doing Black Lives Matter and then saying, let's, let's take a multiple of that. I, I, just, I cannot imagine that plays out in a good way. Most of the country, if you put it that way, will side with the police, and reasonably so, because they'll find it really scary to have shootouts involving the police. Um, that's not a one-off. I mean, that, that seems to me the extreme case. But his other example that he, he, he reverts to several times is, hey, you're just using marijuana. Everyone knows there's nothing wrong with using marijuana. So if the police try and intervene, you can defend yourself. I, I don't know. Maybe there are people really like marijuana at Georgetown, and they find that, like, yeah, I would use force to defend myself against the police because of my God-given right to use marijuana. But... I think most of the country will think, are you kidding? <laughs> You're going to resist the police because you think you have a natural right to use marijuana? I mean, that's just, you're basically saying I'm outside the law if you say that. But why think that it's only nice people on the left? I'm sorry, there was also the intervening with the military. You're gonna shoot up, you're gonna shoot up, uh, up some military base to stop them from launching cruise missiles. Again, you really think the country is going to be saying, oh, yeah, that's good. Some people are stopping the military. That's good. We'll all be better off. Let's allow that. I think that can't happen. I mean, if you think that way, you're basically thinking, I'm in a bubble, and nice people who are my friends will approve. You're not thinking about how the country um, responds. But just think about things that could be done by other people. Uh, much more basic than the sacred right to smoke marijuana or ingest it in some way is the right to life, which everyone finds compelling except for uh, prenatal life. But a lot of people think, maybe, maybe half the country thinks, um, the unborn have a right to life. And abortion clinics are depriving, they're ending life. It's monstrous. Why not use force to stop it? I think this whole, this whole proposal would look a little different if Jason had been willing to say, 
I personally agree you should go in there and shoot up an abortion clinic because you're saving life. Or I don't agree, but I have to admit, honestly, it's plausible. It's reasonable. I can understand how someone else thinks that. And so, yes, I accept that. That's part of my proposal. We'll be shooting up abortion clinics. It'll be okay. Really? It'll be okay? Um, illegal um, border crossings. A lot of people coming into the country are drug dealers, are, um, as the president has said, you know, bad hombres. Uh, most of them aren't, but on the other hand, they are sort of camouflaging the entry of dangerous people. So why not go down to the border and shoot people? Because you need to do this to defend the country. Most people would be horrified. Some people would be kind of thrilled. Uh, and Jason is saying, yeah, try it out. Yes, let's do it. Because, I mean, there is this fundamental right to use force to defend yourself. I think, again, this is, like, disturbing. Uh, more than the sacred right to use marijuana not mentioned in the Constitution, or even, I think, hinted at, there's no, even the Warren Court was not willing to say there was an inherent right to use drugs, but there is the right to bear arms that is in the Second Amendment. Many localities are effectively depriving people of the right to carry arms to defend themselves. They don't allow you to, they don't allow public carry. Somebody who believes deeply in that could say to Jason, it's in the Constitution, it's fundamental, it's primary, I cannot be safe without it. And by the way, I can't intervene in those instances of police brutality without it. So if you try and take away my gun, you, officer, I will shoot you. And I'm entitled because I have the right to bear arms, and that's fundamental and sacred. This could go in many ways which people wouldn't find so appealing as the example that he gives. I want, just before I sit down, to say, um, there's a lot of other plausible things that could be proposed if you are worried about government abuse, which I think we should all be worried about government abuse. There is a lot of government abuse, uh, but that doesn't mean we should encourage people to use force, not even as a last resort, because it is, in almost all circumstances, counterproductive, as Jason sort of admits in passing. Like, oh, yes, the police will kill you, but still you have a right. I, I don't even know what that means. So I, I think this is not helpful. But there's a lot of obvious things that might be helpful, and I hope that in his next book or the book after the next book or whenever he gets around to it, he will come back to these because they're good. Um, not in libertarian la-la land, not in some utopian science fiction fantasy. In America, in good old America, in 19th century America, in early 20th century America, until a time when there are people still with us, I mean, very old people, we have still this common law doctrine. If somebody, an agent of the government, violates your rights, you can sue them personally. And this was really good at keeping regulatory officials and policemen a little bit cautious because they could be held personally liable. And we've basically done away with that. We have restricted that so much that it's almost inapplicable, which means they don't worry about personal liability. I don't see why we can't go back to that or at least go part of the way back to that. Um, Jason mentioned, which I thought was right. I mean, we are much more alert to police brutality because people are filming these things, and a lot of municip municipalities are requiring the police to film themselves. Good, that's excellent. That's very helpful. And then we could sort it out afterwards. I think 
in, in increasing the personal liability of officials, uh, documenting things more fully, those would be quite helpful. And um, I'll just say the thing that would not be helpful is something that Jason, he just, it was, it was sort of, you might have missed it because it was just in passing. Lying is justified, he says. Lying is justified uh, if it's in a good cause and it's necessary to achieve a good end. No, no, no. So one other thing we could do is try to mobilize public consensus. It's really bad for public officials to lie, and we will really call them out when they do. I know this doesn't seem like with the current incumbent in the White House the best time to make a fuss about this, but I think it's always good to say, no, that's a minimum, and it's really corrosive to our democracy. So enhance personal liability, get more documentation, and get people to be more serious about honesty, just like truthful what happened. And you, you, we try and impose a political price on people who, who misrepresent and lie. Um, those, I think, are maybe not saving the world, but they might constrain government somewhat, and they're all much more practical than, how about this very abstract doctrine which no one took seriously until Jason, which is every citizen can go around and start shootouts with the police because by some reckoning it's sort of plausible, and I just want to say thank you, it was very provocative, but it's not plausible. Thank you. All right, we have uh, time for questions. I'm going to exercise moderator's prerogative and ask the first one. Uh, the examples we've been talking about have all been very vivid and startling and arresting and emotionally charged. And I think that that might be good for starting a discussion, but not necessarily good for ending a discussion. So I have a question about an example I'd like to give you. Suppose we know from research that a given regulation is about to be changed in a way that will kill approximately 10 people a year. And it's something to do with agriculture. It can be maybe an over-regulation or an under-regulation. Whichever, whichever thing you find more plausible, the Secretary of Agriculture is about to approve it. Is it OK to assassinate the Secretary of Agriculture? And I ask this because this is not the Secretary of Agriculture saying, go out and kill 10 farmers. It is the Secretary of Agriculture acting with a great deal of remove from the situation. Maybe he knows about the research that says about 10 people will, will die in excess per year. Maybe he knows about it. Maybe he's not concerned about it. Maybe this regulation is something that looks really good politically, and so he wants it. So his motives are terrible. But it's, it's also something that a fair amount of remove. It's not Hitler saying, let's kill these 10 Jews. It's not something emotionally charged like that. It's very bloodless in a sense. Is this type of assassination okay? Now, we might want to compare this to an assassination in the private sphere, where the Acme Soap Company has research about its soap that says 10 people per year will die from this soap. Do we kill the CEO? Uh, at what point does it cease being okay to do murder, I guess? I mean, how do you cabin the doctrine? And, and uh, I don't really have a good answer to that, I don't think. So I would, I would want to ask. I just want to add to the question that this happens almost every day. But certainly it happens every week. Oh, in regulation studies, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. 
So that's my question. I will ask it, and then I will, I will uh, wait for an answer, and then I will uh, entertain questions from the audience also. Yeah, good. It's a good question. Um, I think it's, I need more information to tell you the answer. I mean, my, my official position is, you know, you say, hey, you could construct a position with a, a parallel case with a civilian. So I, my view is, well, whatever your views on the civilian, you would treat the government agent the same. But when you say it's going to kill 10, I also need to know how is it going to kill them? If, if you say, well, the seatbelt law, if we allow people to drive without seatbelts, an additional 6,000 people are going to die per year. So we know that that will be the net effect of the removing of that regulation or changing the particular seatbelt regulation. Um, but you know, there's this complicated moral question, like, well, does that count as you killing them or is it simply like you're letting them act in risky ways and thus they will die? So in order to like make it a case where everything more would be plausible, it'd have to be something like, the net effect of this is going to be literally the government will be killing 10 people, not simply it will create some rules and the background effect will be that we can estimate that average 10 people are going to die a year. But if it's like we have the soap and we're going to put some poison in the soap and we know because we'll make like an extra $50 putting the poison in the soap, but we know it'll cost 10 extra cases of cancer, then like, yeah, shoot, shoot away. If it's, we have this soap and we know that like, you know, people are going to engage, you slip and slides and that's kind of dangerous when they have slip and slides. It's like, no, you're not violating anybody's rights, even though the predictable effect is increased risk taking, increased death. So I actually need to know the mechanism by which people die before you can tell whether it's an injustice, before you can tell whether it's resisting. You also need to know, well, what happens when you kill him? Like, so one of the questions is, like, you're the, you're the concentration camp guard and you're going to gas these 500 Jews and... If we shoot you, what happens? Like, how long do the Jews get to live extra for? Before, like, do you just get replaced immediately by someone else and they just die anyways? So you need to know like things about the effects of of intervening. So I I don't know enough with the question to answer it one way or another. I, I just want to say, just quickly, um, we live in an era in which it is really easy to whip people into a froth of righteous indignation on the left, on the right, up, down, everywhere. I mean, just like the country seems to be seething with rage and people find Nazi analogies like, oh, yes, of course, yes, the president is a Nazi, it's obvious. Or, or they think, you know, idiot students who are protesting and they don't allow Ben Shapiro to talk. They are Nazis! So, like, the country's teeming with Nazis, and it's amazing that we haven't had more people killed. Um, it's just terrible. It's terrible to encourage the thought that, yeah, maybe it'd be good to just, like, kill people. Like, almost never. Almost never. And if you tell me you could, you could construct a hypothetical in some very extreme case where it might sort of be defensible, I mean, do it. Don't give a speech about it. We'll see what happens. But really, it almost never, and the reason it's almost never is we don't actually agree on what risks are worth worth taking. We don't actually agree on what the consequences are going to be. There's a reason why you know, liberalism and democracy are defaults. It's not just uh, antiquarianism. It's that it's really hard to get people to agree on, as they would say now, an algorithm which generates for you who deserves to die because what they're doing is so bad. We just don't agree about these things. There are very few things which are so clear cut. That's why people love Nazi analogies because they have to reach outside our time and our country to find something which is so clear. And that, that is just crazy. That should not be your frame of reference in dealing with your fellow citizens, even the Secretary of Agriculture, whoever that may be. Um, 
uh, Walter Olson from Canada, there were two concepts that I was kind of expecting to come up during uh, Professor Fernand's talk and didn't, and I wondered if I brought them up whether they were left on purpose or where he would briefly react. One is, um, we always used to, uh, in, in discussing this, sorry, sorry, in, in discussing these questions of resistance uh, in, in college, we always would come up with the idea that um, anyone is permitted to resist because anyone is permitted to resume the, quote, state of nature with respect to the, uh, the other people around them, but that if they did, they had to expect that the state of nature would then be expressed against them by you know, all sorts of violence happening to them. Uh, so it preserves the right to resist something unjust, but at the same time, it suggests the consequences for those who do. The second one, which I think is kind of related, is uh, the idea not of revolution, but of civil war. It, Hobbes and others warned that uh, if you know how bad civil war is, you will be extremely careful never to do anything that might touch it off, uh, which would mean uh, don't do a revolution even if you have 51% chance of winning. Does that figure in? Yeah, thanks. I agree with uh, the second point. It's one reason why I'm against revolution per se. Revolutions almost always fail. They almost always cause an even worse government to come into power. And the thing about war is revolution is a type of war. Lots and lots of innocent people die along the way. Predictable consequence of any kind of war that you're going to fight is you will kill lots and lots of innocent people. So I'm talking about targeted acts of resistance to you're seeing injustice being perpetrated. You happen to be in a special circumstance where you could intervene, a target act of resistance to that particular circumstance. As far as revisiting the consequences, no. I mean, like, let's just say, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm picking, I don't think you have a natural right to smoke marijuana. I think you have a natural right not to be coerced unless there's good reason to do it. That's, that's my view. Like, you shouldn't push other people around unless there's good reason. And it turns out marijuana is not a good reason. Right? So imagine you come to my house and you're like, I'm going to, using my magical powers, make you wear a red scarf for five minutes a, a year at the time of your own choosing. And it turns out I can stop you by doing this by punching you in the face. I'd be like, yeah, I'm justifying punching you in the face. Not because I have like a special, magical, natural right to stop the red scar. And when I punch you in the face, the reaction should be, well, well, now we've entered, re-entered a state of nature, so you should accept the consequences. It should be, no, you were wrong to do in the first place. You should bear the consequences of your wrong behavior, and I should bear no consequences. I'm, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything, and you're pushing me around. Right? And by the way, it's worth noting, I mean, he has some very good points about this book might very well be self-effacing. I wrote a book called The Ethics of Voting, which is about, said, you should only vote if you're a good voter. In other words, you should choose to stay home. And the problem with that book was the people who think they're good voters read it are like dummy. Like because something called the Dunning-Kruger effect. The people who think they're good voters are going to be like, oh, yeah, uh, that, that's me. I can vote. And the people who, are, who actually are good voters, like Jeffrey Brennan, read it and went, like this is literally his reaction. He went, oh, maybe I shouldn't vote because I'm kind of dumb. Right? So it's true that like, there's an empirical question. If this were widely spread, what would happen? So I think humans are, we already have a system where we have violence all the time and lots of people being hurt and you know, the government's throwing immigrants in cages and throwing, like we have 25% you know, of the world's prisoners are in the US and so on. So we're already talking about a situation in which we're talking about people being killed and people being murdered and using violence day to day. The question is just, who's gonna do it? You or them, the people with the power? Yes, Hi, just um, at the risk of going outside time and country, um, yeah, can you, anyhow, at the risk of going outside time and country, I just want to um, make a differentiation between revolution and uh, things that have happened in the past. For example, the English Civil War, where you had parliament going against the king, and you had the abolition of the Star Chamber, 
you had the lesser magistrates defending the liberty of the people against a tyrant, right? And what came out of that was a notion that the king's not above the law. Likewise, with our own war for independence, which I prefer not to call a revolution, right? We had Continental Congress being the lesser magistrates defending our liberties against uh, George III. So uh, my point is, I guess, uh, starting with Locke, which the discussion has done, it, it actually goes back further, you know, because Parliament didn't have Locke in the mid-1600s. And uh, they may have had John Calvin in his institutes where he talks about the lesser magistrates having a duty to defend the liberty of the people. Um, but I do want to get to actual question. The, uh, <laughs> the idea of the our magistrates being sued can't, I thought under the federal civil rights laws, we could sue them individually now. Am, am I wrong in that? Not, not, not personal liability where you get them to pay damages. I mean, it's, it, it, there is a category of this, but it's just very, very, the Supreme Court, once they came up with this, it, it's it from, as a, in federal court in the 1970s, then they became Bivens, right? And then they became, oh, sorry, no, we didn't mean that. No, sorry, not, not, not if they didn't know, not if they didn't mean, ooh, blah, blah, blah. And so for, for, as a practical matter, it's, it seems to be a pretty dead doctrine. Now, you could have recourse, you could have had recourse in state courts under common law. The states have also gone that way of, oh, no, we don't want to intimidate public officials. So I think this is a feasible thing. It's not that it's, oh, we just couldn't do it. It's just that we, the, the, I think, the prevailing mood has been the government needs to be protected because we want the government to be confident. And that's not what I'm saying. I want the society to be confident, which is different. Yes. Uh, my, my name's Elaine Middleman, attorney. I just want to clarify it on the point you said this is this is not really what I was going to ask, but the under the state, this is an issue I've raised many times in my own situation. State and and municipal workers can sue under their statute section 1983, but federal cannot, and they have to rely on the common law, which is Bivens, which, as he just said, the courts have, you know, disfavored it as strongly. So there's a distinction between what a state and federal a municipal worker, they, they can go to court. Now, whether they'll win is a whole other question, and there's the issue of qualified immunity, but, but at least there's a statute and, I, and I've, I've raised the question many times, why is it that they have a statute that allows them directly into court and federal workers have nothing? And actually, they're criticized. Because we distrusted Confederate states in 1875 or whenever right, it was. Exactly. Yeah. So, but the, the question I was going to ask is, when you use the word resistance, which is what I think you started off with, I, I didn't, I mean, I didn't know what you were going to be talking about today. I had no idea. In my mind, resistance didn't equal to me violence, but it seems like you're using resistance to mean violence. And, and I mean, I don't know if you went through different levels of violence, but is, is there something else that resistance could be besides murdering somebody? Or I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't get that, really. Yeah, uh, so there are certain kinds of actions which are normally by default impermissible. Deceiving other people, destroying their property, using violence against their person. Um, resistance could even include just things like simply ignoring the law. I'm just not going to report this income. I'm just going to just evade it and like, and I know I won't get caught. So take like evasion is the weakest form and violence against a person is the strongest form, everything in between. 
most people have the following view. It's wrong to do these things most of the time, but under certain circumstances you can. Like for example, I'm hiding people up in my basement. You're the murderer at the door. This isn't a Nazi case, by the way. It turned out to be a Nazi case, but it was produced hundreds of years before the Nazis. Uh, I'm hiding people up in my attic. You're a murderer at the door. You want to kill those people. And you say, hey, do you have any people that you're hiding? I want to kill them. I'm allowed to lie to you. I wouldn't normally be allowed to lie to you, but I'm allowed to lie to you to stop you from killing them. Even Kant agrees, by the way. Everyone gets him wrong about it. Even Kant agrees I'm permitted to lie to you. He just thinks I have legal liability if certain things happen afterwards. Like, it's permissible to lie to you to stop you. Now, if lying is sufficient to stop you, I can't you I can't punch you in the face. And if punching you in the face is sufficient to stop you, then I can't chop off your head. And if it turns out simply not answering the doorbell is sufficient to stop you, then I can't open the door and lie to you. So the whole idea of a heightened necessity is there's a range of ever more destructive and harmful actions, and you have to pick a lesser one if it's equally as effective as a stronger one, right? And the less, least thing might simply be simply ignoring the law, right? So if you can just get away with it without having to do anything, then that's what you do. Uh, we have one more question. Yes, you've been very patient. Yes, you. All right, hi. I'm coming out uh, to you with the expertise of uh, intro to political philosophy, so uh, not more than that. Um, but uh, my question kind of has to do with I guess more of a, a less personal idea of what is correct. Uh, your colleague at American Enterprise, Jonah Goldberg, I'm sure you're uh, familiar with him, has an idea of the miracle, which is for the last, you know, if a sp if an alien spaceship came every 10,000 years, you know, they'd see us, you know, bi bipedal, and then uh, and then you know, kind of tinkering around with tools, and then in the last 10,000 years, they would. When the spaceship comes, comes they would probably NASA would probably see it. So the question is, there is this miracle that has come through government, which comes with injustice, where we've built a really strong Western society. We became moral human beings, um, and I think I mean, I, I, do you find it dangerous to say that? Oh, hey, we should just throw this all away, and you know, and um, yeah, and, and basically. Uh, oh my gosh, I'm, my gosh. Um, but yeah, um, be anarchical, is that a word? Yeah, um, so do you think that that is a danger? And you know, we've done a lot of bad things, like we've had sterilization of the mentally ill through our courts um, and criminals, but we've also, through those same systems, come to a lot of good progress, uh, civil rights. Do you think that that is uh, those institutions are challenged by this idea that we should tear the systems down because of, like, different... Uh... Yes. And, and I thought uh, this was not a helpful quote, Albert J. Nock in 1941, saying, like, all right, well, our enemies are kind of bad, but, you know, I mean, we've done a lot of bad things. That was not a good time to be preaching America's not that great. It was really important for the world that America have moral confidence in 1941, and there hardly ever is a time when America is not needed to have some background moral confidence. So I do agree with you. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be ways of containing government, resisting government, short of violence. But it does mean, uh, I think, the, 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 I'll just in the last minute say one thing that we didn't really bring up. I think this was not anybody's doctrine seriously until 15 minutes ago, because everybody thought, no, wait, we need to have a, a common authority. We need to have a government. 
And the government can't really function effectively if people are constantly saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, I got my gun, oh yeah, oh yeah, right? So the, the government does deserve some background deference. I forgot which phony argument that has been debunked by Jason that one is, but um, I think that was sort of the common sense of the matter, and I still subscribe to it. I think even if you think Trump, which I happen to think is a little bit crazy, and has some very bad ideas and has done some, let's say, unhelpful things, you should have some respect for the office because if you don't have respect for the office and the institutions and the results of elections, you're saying, let's throw everything up and see what happens. What, what Wally Olson said was exactly to the point. Going back to the state of nature will not be an improvement. And, and like, uh, my take on it's like this. There's like a Laffer curve, like this is your total value kind of, whatever you whatever value is, total value outcome, and then this is the belief in authority, belief in deference to government and so on. I suspect that there's kind of, and like belief, just deference to the general rules. I think there's probably a Laffer curve kind of relationship here where like too little is really bad, too much is really bad. I think we're probably over here. Give, I think I provide evidence for that. Like we are overly deferential, there's a lot of evidence for that, so we need to scale it back. And it would be best if we were here and that would produce the most amount of value. That's actually compatible with, by the way, being the case there is actually no authority. So just to give you an example, um, it could turn out empirically, something anthropologists might discover, that if you get people to be Protestant Christians, that that produces the best total consequences for human beings. They cooperate the most, they have the best institutions, and everyone's the happiest. That's good. You could find out that that might be true, even if it turns out that Protestant Christianity is wrong. In which case, if you're a philosopher of religion, you might be like, well, I've shown that there is no Protestant God, but I don't want to publicize that too much because it turns out the optimal outcome is if I get people to believe in this mythology. It might be that authority, I'm not, I'm not making a claim about Christianity, I'm just saying like that's a hypothetical. You could understand people think that way. There have been a lot of like atheist philosophers who are like, we don't want to advertise this because it's useful for people to think otherwise. So it might turn out that belief in authority is really useful. We might have too much of it. Maybe we have too little. You know, we disagree about that. It's an empirical claim about where we are on this curve, right? But that doesn't tell us whether authority is real. It just tells us whether it's useful for flawed human beings to believe in it. Um, so, you know, worst case scenario is I think this book might be dangerous. If it turns out we're over here, um, I should sh I'm right, but I should shut up. You know, I think I'm over here, so I think I'm right, and I should keep talking. So there was a, a famous uh, saying uh, against the Protestants, no bishop, no king. You get rid of the state-sponsored church with its ecclesiastical hierarchy, you will lose the king, and then there will be anarchy. Uh, we obviously can see with the benefit of hindsight that there were a few steps missing in that argument, and I think the question here is, is this another step that also is maybe not so well defended? But uh, we are out of time, and so I will thank you all for coming, and please join me in thanking our discussants as well. <laughs>